I know that I know that I know that his presence just changes everything. And I want everyone to experience that and know that they don't have to wait for Sunday. You know, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is alive in us. So we actually live in the power of this promise every moment of every day. Welcome to the Jesus Calling Podcast. Today's guests are two women who have seen God's presence woven into the fabric of their lives and realize He's closer to us in ways we might have never imagined. Worship leader, pastor, and writer Darlene Sheck and Bible teacher Margaret Feinberg. First up, Darlene Sheck grew up in Australia and found commercial success in music at age 10, but decided to leave a career as an entertainer to seek a life in worship and ministry. In 1993, during a stressful period of her life, Darlene found herself at her piano, prayerfully singing in glory to God. The words that flowed from her heart became one of the most recognized praise and worship songs of the modern era, Shout to the Lord. Now she and her husband pastor together at Hope Unlimited Church. My name is Darlene Check. I am a wife and a mum and a grandmum. My husband Mark and I pastor a church on the central coast of New South Wales in Australia called Hope Unlimited Church, which we love doing. You know, I'm also a writer of songs and books and all sorts of things. I grew up in Queensland in Australia, the eldest of four kids. My grandparents actually on my dad's side, very strong Christian people. And, you know, I really think I'm here today because of their prayers. You know, every morning they prayed for us by name. There were earlier days where I remember succinctly being in church, being around worship, being around the presence of God and the people of God. And I know something was really birthed in my heart from a young age, but I never knew really how to have a relationship with God. And really how I came to become a Christian was my family went through a terrible breakup, as many families do, and I found myself at 15 living out of home, renting a little room in a family's home that went to a church. So during that season, my father ended up rededicating his life to Christ, came and picked me up from where I lived, took me to the church that this family went to, and I got radically born again from that time on. So when kind of my heart came alive in Christ at 15, so many things made sense to me that really I had never been able to reconcile. I had um, auditioned for a children's national television show when I was a kid and I got into that. So I was full time on television from the age of 10 to 15. I was, um, you know, working primarily full-time, trying to do school. Um, I was successful, you know, I was in the magazines and all those things. So I had this little career as a kid, but couldn't really reconcile my spirituality. Then I was in a band um, at my new church, met the drummer, and yeah, we fell in love. And all we really wanted to do was ministry, youth ministry, any kind of ministry. So. You know, that's kind of how I started doing ministry. I mean, I've always loved music. I could sing the songs, I could hit the notes. 
I did jingles for years, you know, could sing about a chip, McDonald's, Coke. For me, I became restless with music. And so this is where this worshipper was starting to emerge. I had to unlearn the entertainer. I was all singing, all dancing. I could sing a song and perform it. And then God says to me, you don't ever have to perform for me. I'm like, but I don't know how else to do it. And the performer had to really die so that the worshipper could rise. And that has been my journey. I'm still on the journey. And, you know, one day when I take my final breath here on earth, I'll just take my first one in heaven and I'll just continue in worship. It's pretty awesome. Well, shout to the Lord. Um, I always say I can't really take credit for writing it. I'll never forget the day because we were running a business out of our home. We were full-time ministry in our hearts. There was no job and we couldn't afford to be on staff. And actually, I never wanted to be paid by the church. I just felt like they could do other things with the money. And our business wasn't doing well. And I remember getting this bill in the mail and I just went and shut myself in the room next door, which housed a piano, an old piano that my parents gave me when I was five, when I got my tonsils out, because I always loved music. And I just sat on there and I opened the word and between Psalm 96 and Psalm 100 is really shout to the Lord. And I just worshiped, just played and sang. And my Jesus, my savior, it just was like really natural. It didn't, I wasn't writing, I was worshiping. So after it, I, I think that's a song, but I was never confident as a songwriter. So even, you know, a couple of months later, I took it to our worship pastor. I said, I might've written a song, I don't know. I made him and the music director stand with their backs, like I was on the piano uh, and they could tell you this story. And I'm like, my Jesus, change that line if you don't like it. I just really don't know if I'm a songwriter. My savior, I was just apologized the whole way through. And at the end, the music pastor turned around and he just teary and said, Thank you, that's beautiful. And we sang it the next week in church, just over an offering. And I remember people just standing up in the middle of, I'm like, what, 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 what's happening? And literally from that day, the song left my lips and it just took a life of its own. People ask me to, you know, do you get sick of singing it? And sometimes in the natural I'll be like, oh man, isn't there another song you can sing? Like, but actually what I never tire of is what happens in people. It's just this automatic glory to God. That's all we can say, right? Glory to God. It's just a God story. And I'm so, so thankful. There's an ache in people across the earth and in, in the church, um, an ache to belong. You know, when Jesus walked around the earth, 
what did he walk around doing? He, he preached to the masses, but then he also saw the one. He encouraged us around fellowship, around tables, around eye contact, around laying on of hands, around those things that actually require vulnerability of relationship. I think people are aching for relationship. The beauty of church is about family and about there's a place for you here. We come together to be fueled, not to be entertained. We come to be fueled so that we can go. We come together as the body. That means if you're not there, then we're missing something. You know, so I think that there is this urgency for us to open our hands wider, our arms wider. No judgment. You come and I'm, you're going to be seen and you're going to see me and we're going to connect and we're going to pray and I'm going to believe for your miracle and you're going to believe for my miracle and together in this great gang we are the church, we are part of the kingdom of God and then the most exciting bit, we get to go and we get to be his hands and feet wherever we go. I'm excited to see what's going to happen in the years to come as we get vulnerable again and sit at tables together and believe God for the impossible. What I love about pastoring, I love just being with the people in the trenches. I love being in the hospitals. I love being at people's bedsides. I, I think it's the most profound privilege to be there when it, there's birth and when there's death. I feel like it's one of the great honours we have as being shepherds. And it can be hard when people willfully make choices that you know is going to hurt them or their families and when you know they know better. Um, when you've prayed with people and you believe for miracles and the miracle doesn't come through and you've got to walk through that and negotiate your own soul in those spaces. Um, but the joy is always, my, my husband says, what we are is we're missionaries of hope. And we, if you can trade in hope, then you can always trade in something that is fantastic. And that is the glory of the job. There are so many things that pastors carry that they don't share, they just carry. What I'm learning about my husband is, is amazing. I mean, he, he never really preached. Um, he always taught kind of more in the background. Um, and to watch God at work in his life has been unbelievable. The way he shares the word of God is like, I've never really seen it done like that. And that's been amazing. Darlene and Mark's ministry journey has had its share of joys and heartaches. She talks about the years she battled cancer which she writes about candidly in her new book, The Golden Thread. So The Golden Thread came about, um, I guess, over the last five years, going through a cancer journey, a journey that um, I never saw myself walking through. Um, Mark and I both lost our dads to cancer. You know, you just never think that that's going to happen to you. 
So the golden thread is talking about that journey, talks about the cancer journey, negotiating that with my theology, with my faith, which and how I was going to walk through this in a public space. You know, do I do this privately just for me and my family or do we do this publicly and just trust God with the outcome and if I live or die, really, God, I, I win. Like I had to reconcile those things. And so the greatest thing for me through all of this, the one thing has been the presence of God. And I was trying to, how do we describe the presence of God, you know? And for me, it was like this golden thread just weaving its way in and through everything despite my feelings, despite my elation or my despair, despite my fear or my lack of faith, despite my, you know, sometimes I'd be so kind and in other times I got angry, angry at where I found myself and frustrated. And despite all of that, there's that golden thread of the presence of God just woven throughout the whole thing. To be honest, it still takes my breath away. I just still can't believe that he is so good, that, it, that he is so good. And even though there is so much chaos in the world and so much disappointment, the goodness of God, if you want to look for it, you'll see it. You know, I'd been chasing this lump for a couple of years. I'd had many scans, it come back inconclusive, um, fatty tissue, and I'm like, welcome to the 40s, welcome to fatty tissue. It's how it rolls. But it was giving more, me more concern. I was with a friend Christmas shopping, um, and we were popping into this breast appointment. But the thing about this place is, until you get a conclusive, they don't let you go home. And so I'm like, we've got shopping to do. Can we hurry up? You know, a girl's priorities. Um, and, but they went, you know, we need to do a biopsy. And the biopsy came through inconclusive. And I'm like, how can this be? And I'm like, I felt in my spirit that you need to stay. So they did a core biopsy all on the same day. My friend, because I'm like, put some worship music on, put some worship music on. And they're putting, you know, they have to clamp your flesh and take it out. And there's no anesthetic or anything. So she's singing in my ear. I'm like, stop singing. It's so bad. And then she puts on this song that's way too, like, punchy. I'm like, I don't want any words. There was a, I think it was a Jesus Culture song. And it was a, the instrumental of this song and it's so powerful and, you know, I just kept leaning in. Um, to, I'm like, God, you're gonna have to transport me away from this place because I can't do this right now. So then after that, you know, you're feeling good. You're like, okay, I've done this right. I'm still gonna go shopping. It's funny what's in the back of your mind. And then the specialist called me in with my friend and said, um, is there someone who can pick your child up from school? And I'm like, no, because I, I just knew what was coming. I said, no, there's not. She said, no, you must have one person in your world. Like, yes, I do. And she said, that's good because it's come back and you have breast cancer. And from what we can see is that um, it is 
progressive and um, you need to have surgery straight away. So that was on the 13th of December. On the 20th of December, I had surgery. I got back to home on Christmas Eve. My best friend, sorry, I get emotional, came and made the best Christmas day for my family and my kids, because home is really important to me. And, um, you know, the doctor still visited me on Christmas Day. I was really sick. And, um, yeah, God's good. Four weeks later, I was in chemo. And then I had seven months of really aggressive treatment. If you're walking through a tough time, you know, there are a few things I set in place. And my husband helped me set in place. Um, because sometimes even people come up and pray for me they'd start praying and they'd start praying out their own fears. And I could feel it. You know, she's gonna die, but bless the Lord. Lord, just your will is what we're praying. And I'm like, I had to learn to go, actually, unless you're praying in faith over me, you need to stop praying right now. And I, some people don't ever wanna to speak to me again because of how blunt I was, but I actually had to get very um, um, what, militant about what I would let in and what I wouldn't let in because I'm, I'm a bit of a nice person. Sometimes being nice is not necessarily the best thing. And I've had to learn this um, for my kids as well. Had to be militant about who was around them, you know, because people would come up to them and burst into tears and, and be heavy on them. And that doesn't help, you know, so be really careful with who you have around you. Make sure there's lots of joy in the home. Turn the worship up. There was That was when Bethel put out, when I was going through chemo, they put out, you make me brave. My girlfriend traveled a long way and she said, you're gonna listen to this song. And I, cause I was coming to the end of chemo and it's accumulative, the effects of chemo. So the first one you bounce back, the second one it's harder, third one harder, fourth one harder, it goes harder and harder. And the, going into the last one, I didn't think I could do it. I'd been, um, uh, when you're having chemo, you can drop to zero in your blood cells and you have to be rushed to hospital, neutropenic. And I'd had that happen a few times and I'm thinking, I don't know that I can do this again. So she came and she hopped into bed with me. She's like, we're gonna listen to this song. I'm like, I don't want to listen to this song. She's like, well, I don't really care. You're going to listen to this song and we're going to listen to it until you feel brave. And I was like, you're not being a good friend. She's like, actually, I'm the best friend you've got. Now listen to this song. And it was fantastic. And that's the people you need in your corner. You don't need people who are, oh, you poor thing. You need people who are just making life normal. I could hear my friends downstairs cooking, doing the ironing laughing with my kids. You know, there was a lady at our church that made, sorry, I get emotional, that made lunches for my kids every day so that I never had to worry about school lunches. I mean, it's practical, it's practical, and it's so kind. And she was consistent, and she's a busy working mother, but that's what she did for me and my family. I'll never forget that. And that's what you need in your world. If you don't have it, you know, find, find a church and tell them what you need. And if it's a good church, they'll be able to help you.
Be really careful about what you say, be careful about what you read. My family um, would not allow me to Google anything. No Dr. Google, because it's always bad news. So you've got to protect your mind, you know, feed, feed yourself with good things. Look after your body, look after your soul. The thing that I started doing as a teenager was praying the Psalms because they, they are prayers, they're, they're, they're poetry, they're cries, they're, they're mountaintops and valleys, which is our life. You know, we, we all experience great things and we all experience really tough things. So the Psalms give us a way to voice what maybe you can't find a way to voice yourself. You can open up the Bible and pray that prayer and join the psalmist who wrote it to pray that prayer. We have something that we do at our church that we just say, pray first. Pray first, you know, rather than talk about it, ring a friend about it, gossip about it, complain about it. Why don't you pray first? And it's amazing because God is a God who's interested in us as individuals. And he says, if you draw near to me in James 4, 8, I will draw near to you. So it's really easy to learn how to just, Jesus, I don't even know what to pray right now, but I need you to help me in this situation. And it's amazing when you start to understand that he's a personal God. He's not a far off waiting to hit you if you say the wrong words. He's a personal God interested in your personal life and he wants to walk with you. So we invite him in, pray first. I really understand the power of prayer and even more so as I get older, you know, and so in following my grandparents' footsteps, I love to pray for my grandchildren and my children, of course, but my grandchildren every, every day because um, they're growing up in a world that is quite chaotic. And, um, you know, my greatest prayer is that they would have a real strong relationship with Jesus from an early age so that that's one thing that is the constant in their life. And rather than Jesus being an accessory, that he's the centre. There's a few key scriptures in my life. With this past challenge of cancer, um, Psalm 91, which, you know, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Within it says, um, a thousand may fall, you write 10,000, but no harm will come near you. I mean, I, I have feasted on those words in ways that I never knew I would need to. And, the, and, and it finishes with, um, and with li long life, I will satisfy you. And to be honest, I take it every day. Like I take my medication that I have to take for 10 years and I take Psalm 91 and I, and I feast on it. Yeah, the word, you know, I think sometimes, and I've been guilty of it in the past too, looking at it, here's something I have to do. Oh, quick, I better get through my devotional. Um, I love devotionals. I better get through it rather than actually making the time and sitting and just even taking one line and rather than you reading it and just tick a box like really letting it impact you and what I love about Jesus calling 
I mean, I firstly love that it's bite size. I think that that is masterful. But I love that it pulls Jesus really close. And I think when I think about Jesus calling, I just think about some of the times with my own children, just reading some of these devotionals with them. Um, for me, that's really important that our children don't see God as a far off God. But Jesus calling, you know, talking from the perspective of God speaking to you, that is a powerful, powerful concept to know and understand. So Jesus Calling provides that for us. And I love how it provided that for me when I don't have the words, but I can sit and actually be guaranteed that this is going to bring life and hope to my kids. And I think that's amazing. I was just thinking about this before when Zoe was... Um, before the cancer diagnosis, I went and bought her Jesus Calling for Kids. And it amazes me actually, because um, she was 10 when I was diagnosed. And that's a really critical age. And so that eight to 10, you know, she had Jesus Calling for Kids by her bed, which is really powerful. So from 10 till um, about 11 and a half, she suffered with anxiety, thinking her mum was going to die. And I love how out of this season now, if you saw Zoe Jewell, what has been birthed in her is a worshipper. I mean, she, she knows Jesus as her friend. You know, words like from this book that pull Jesus close, I think are life-defining for us, you know, and for our children. And so they kind of help you dig your own wells. And in tough times, you've got to learn to dig your well in God, you know, and, and I think this really helps us do that. And I'm ever grateful. So I'm reading from December 1, and it says this, I love you with an everlasting love, which flows out from the depths of eternity. Before you were born, I knew you, and ponder the awesome mystery of a love that encompasses you from before birth to beyond the grave. Modern man has lost the perspective of eternity. To distract himself from the gaping jaws of death, he engages in ceaseless activity and amusement. The practice of being still in my presence is almost a lost art. Yet it is this very stillness that enables you to experience my eternal love. You need the certainty of my loving presence in order to weather the storms of life. And during times of severe testing, even the best theology can fail you if it isn't accompanied by experiential knowledge of me. The ultimate protection against sinking during life's storms is devoting time to develop your friendship with me. That's me. <laughs> that, is, that is mine. And that is so perfect and so true. You know, I think through some of the tough times, you know, having a late miscarriage with a long-awaited child drew me to my knees in a way I'd never experienced. Um, losing my dad. I think some of those tough seasons, they draw you to your knees and back to the Word in a way, you know, that changes your life. And so for me, it's really been about 
this journey of leaning into the word, not, not finding my value off from a platform. I think it's a really dangerous place to find your value in God is when you are just doing. I think it's about being. In Him I live and move and have my being, not my doing. So that again has been an unlearning, especially when worship, the momentum of worship on the earth, you know, has been going like this. I think it's really important for those who lead in the sphere of worship, whether it's a musician or you're even a production or whatever it is, and you're helping facilitate this song of God in people's hearts, we've got to be careful that there is an engine room in your secret place that is fueling the things you do because otherwise you can just get good at the doing and, and we forget about the being. So for me, they have been some critical times in my life. And as hard as it was in the moment, on this side, I'm so grateful to God and I'm learning to trust Him at a deeper level, which is why I get so passionate about worship. You know, I believe that the highest purpose for music is when it when it communicates and carries the presence of God. And you know, when it allows our soul to give voice to sometimes the indescribable, and sometimes it's only a melody that can help voice the cries of the human spirit. Darlene's book, The Golden Thread, is available from your favorite book retailer today. You can also find the song Shout to the Lord at iTunes or from your favorite digital music provider. Stay tuned for our chat with writer and teacher Margaret Feinberg after a brief message about a beautiful new edition of Jesus Calling. Are you looking to introduce a friend or a loved one to the peace that can be found by spending time with God daily? There's a beautiful new edition of Jesus Calling that makes a gorgeous gift for someone who might be seeking a new perspective for a new year. It's the same Jesus Calling daily devotional that has inspired over 25 million readers, now updated with a lovely fabric cover and eye-catching foil with feminine floral touches. This elegant new version also features large text and written-out scripture verses with each passage. For more information about this stunning new edition of Jesus Calling, visit jesuscalling.com botanical. That's jesuscalling.com botanical. Now, let's get back to the second half of our program. Our next guest is beloved teacher and writer, Margaret Feinberg. Margaret has been writing for more than 20 years. Today, she tells us about her early experiences growing up with parents who moved around quite a bit and how that shaped her curiosity and love of exploring different people and cultures. Margaret uses that curiosity in her new book, Taste and See, Discovering God Among Butchers, Bakers, and Fresh Food Makers, where she shares an exploration of scripture that profoundly changed the way she viewed gatherings around food forever. I'm Margaret Feinberg, and I have been writing for over two decades and take great pleasure in helping people recapture and discover the wonder of God and His Word. 
I was raised by free-spirited parents who were a little hippie-ish and came to know Jesus in the Jesus movement back in the 1970s. And so I grew up with a Jewish father who came to recognize Yeshua as the Messiah and a Gentile mother. And at the end of the day, I make a pretty great bowl of matzo ball soup. My free-spirited parents were never content uh, living in one place. And so we moved around a lot. And, and in each place, they engaged in different professions. So my parents, they made surfboards and had a surf shop down in Cocoa Beach, Florida. We then moved to Maggie Valley, North Carolina, where my mom was an elementary school teacher on the Cherokee Indian Reservation. And we lived off the grid before it was cool and grew all of our own food and had our own water sources there for a number of years. And eventually we moved to Steamboat Springs Colorado, where my parents became ski instructors for 17 years combined, and I even taught for five years as well. And then I eventually moved to Alaska, where I fell in love with my husband, Leif. And I think all of that moving around as a kid really made me curious. I think that was one of the gifts to to be exposed to different people, different cultures, different places. And I remember one semester during my freshman year, I went to a, a Christian conference. And while I was there, it was like God grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and said, you are my child. I have called you by name, come back to me. And, and that leading and that leaning in led me to actually become a religion major focusing on New Testament studies. You know, I think there are specific encounters that we have with God that can really transform us. And I remember being at that Christian conference and it had completely finished. And I, I've i never heard the audible voice of God, but there are times that a thought will pop into our head and it is simply not our own. And when those happen, you should obviously check them out with scripture. If they don't line up with God's word, you check them far out back. Um, and I think that most of the things that God speaks to us, in fact, all of them will call us to do one of two things and probably both, to love God more and to love others more. And the thought that popped into my mind was go into the prayer room and look underneath the table. And so I, I did it. And I remember going and, and looking underneath the tables and there were tablecloths. And I remember looking, there were four tables and I went to the first three and there was nothing. And then I went to the fourth table and I lifted it up and there was a Bible sitting there and it had the person's name in it. And I remember going to, you know, the people who organized the conference and saying, do you know this person? And they said, no. And then I went online and then I researched and then I kept asking people until I ran into a woman who said, I know exactly whose Bible that is. And here is their phone number. And so I ended up, it took a drive and a returning to return that Bible. And along the way, I ended up giving someone a ride. But I remember in that moment thinking just how real and personal God is. And so for me, that was a really transformational moment in experiencing God, not just knowing him, not just praying to him, not just talking to him, but but being invited to join God in what he is already doing in that moment. More than a decade ago, I wrote a book called Scouting the Divine, My Search for God in Wine, Wool, and Wild Honey. And I went and spent time with a farmer, a beekeeper, 
a vintner or grape grower, and a shepherd. And with each of these people, I opened up the Bible and I asked, how do you read these passages, not as theologians, but in light of what you do every day? And their answers changed the way I read the Bible forever. I mean, time and time again, I found myself asking, how have I grown up in the church? How have I listened to so many sermons? How have I listened to so many podcasts and nobody has told me these things? Well, at the end of that book, I remember in the Bible study, people coming up and saying, why did you not spend time with an olive grower? And I thought, I really wanted to do that, but there wasn't time in this particular project. And so I have been sitting on that desire to go and spend time with an olive grower for 10 years. And so in essence, this book and Bible study have been 10 years in the making. And just this past year, I felt that nudge of the Holy Spirit that whispered, it is time. And so I set out and began to zero in on six different foods in the Bible and people who plant, process, and procure them. And so I went 410 feet down into a salt mine, fished in the Galilee, brought in an olive harvest in Croatia, graduated with a certificate in Stakeology 101 from a Texas butcher who calls himself the meat apostle, picked figs with a world-class fig farmer, and baked matzah in under 18 minutes with an expert on ancient grains at Yale University. With each person again, I asked the question, how do you read these scriptures, these passages passages of the Bible, in light of what you do every day. You know, one of the things that I was surprised by was, first of all, all of them. Each one, each food, whether it was harvesting olives or learning about, you know, a butcher's work, which really ties back into Old Testament sacrifices and Christ coming as the rescuing lamb, or whether it's the fig farmer and learning what Jesus means when he says um, to pay attention to the fig tree, that with each of these, they were so rich with depth and layers of meaning. But I think one of the ones that sticks with me is my time going down 410 feet into a salt mine and beginning to understand that the salt that is described in the Bible is very different than the white, chemically altered salt that we see on tables today. Most of us, when we encounter salt, we don't really think about it. I mean, if you went to a restaurant and you asked for a salt shaker and someone said there'll be an upcharge for that, you would probably think, what is going on here? But in antiquity and in ancient times, salt was actually harvested with its natural source, whether that came from dehydrated salt from the sea, whether that came from lakes where the salt maybe was salty and it had been harvested out, or where it had come from salt mines. And in antiquity, the technology in order to harvest that salt made it difficult and expensive. And that was compounded with the high cost of transporting salt to where it could be used. And so salt was a treasure. It was something that was prized. It was something that was important. It was something that had the ability to transform the way that people ate. Because you have to remember, in that time, there wasn't refrigeration systems. And so when they could take salt and apply it to meat or to fish, something that would go bad in 24 to 36 hours in that hot climate could now last 
four or six or 12 months or longer. It was a game changer. We went about 410 feet deep. We rode in a truck and we entered this large, dark cavern. It was cut out like a square at first. And from the ceiling, you could see the salt dripping down like stalactites of almost ice, except they were salt. And as we drove deeper and deeper, the the road would fork. And then there were these metal doors that would open up. And I remember I was told by my host, Neil, to pay attention because if something were to happen, we'd have to find our own way out. And I thought, there is no way I'm ever going to get out of the salt mine. But as we drive down, the beams of the truck hit the sides of the walls. And what I see is the most stunning picture. It, it is these white walls that are glittering. And it's almost like that there are peach and pink garnets and quartz and soft colored rubies embedded in. And that is the image of the salt with all of the surrounding minerals like the iron or perhaps the magnesium or the darker hues. And so when Jesus says that you are the salt of the earth, he's not referring to the chemically refined salt that we see today. He's referring to the salt that they would have known in antiquity. And that salt was harvested with the surrounding minerals. It often had a hue, uh, much like we would see with Himalayan salt, where it had that pinkish or that little bit of a of peach color to it. Or it might have a little bit of gray if it was harvested from the sea. And what we see is that the surrounding minerals gave the salt its unique flavor its unique color, and its unique texture. Just in the same way, when Christ says to us that you and I, we are the salt of the earth, that each of us have our own unique backgrounds. The places where we were hewn from, our unique upbringings, our unique personalities, our unique giftings, our unique strengths, our unique weaknesses. And God wants to use us as we are as flourishing agents, as preserving agents, and as agents who are helping transform and flavor the world with the flavor of Christ. And so every time we gather around a table, we are invited to taste and see God's goodness, to taste and see His love, His presence, His connection, His attention to detail in each of our lives. Sarah Young is such a gift for such a time as this. The words that she pens connect God's heart to our hearts and the personal nature to her writing. It helps us to recognize that Christ is real and live and personal and involved and compassionate. I think the beauty of her work is that it helps challenge us when we struggle with our understanding of God. And, and to realize that God is with us, that God is for us, and that God loves us madly, that we would be madly in love with Him and with others. I was an early reader of Jesus Calling and love just her approach. I love that personal nature. I love this one. Jesus Calling, November 12th. This is a time of abundance in your life. Your cup runneth over with blessings. After plodding uphill for many weeks, you are now traipsing through lush meadows drenched in warm sunshine. I want you to enjoy the full, this time of ease and refreshment. I delight in providing it for you. Sometimes my children hesitate to receive my good gifts with open hands. Feelings of false guilt creep in, telling them they don't deserve to be so richly blessed. 
This is nonsense thinking, because no one deserves anything from me. My kingdom is not about earning and deserving. It's about believing and receiving. When a child of mine balks at accepting my gifts, I am deeply grieved. Then you receive my abundant blessings with a grateful heart. I rejoice. My pleasure in giving and your pleasure in receiving flow together in joyous harmony. I love this passage and it resonates so deeply with me, in part because I think it captures the idea of tasting and seeing God's goodness and love. That this is a God who has good gifts for us and he sends them to us in so many forms, even in the very food that we eat, that we begin to see that every good gift comes from above, from a Father in whom there is no darkness, in whom shines bright lights into the world and into our hearts, that we would fall more in love with Him. One of my husband Leif's and I great joys is having people over. We thoroughly enjoy it, but I have to tell you that when we have people over, we it doesn't have to be perfect. Uh, any food that is curated with love will do. And sometimes love is ordering out. Sometimes love is the deli counter at the grocery store. Sometimes love is what you pull out of the freezer and throw in a crock pot. So it's not the perfection of a meal or the perfection of a food that makes a warm, loving, transformative evening. At the end of the day, when we gather for a meal, it's not really about the appetizer or the main course or possibly even the dessert. It's about knowing and being known, about being vulnerable, about sharing, about being thoughtful, about being engaging. And in antiquity, bread was a communal act. In other words, among the, the majority of people, not the elite or the wealthy, but, but for the average person who was a peasant, that they would go out and their family would be involved in the planting and the harvesting of the grains, that the family would be involved in the processing of those grains, the need, the kneading of the bread, the blowing away of the chaff, the baking of the bread that was done in communal ovens. And so that starts to shift the way that I and all of us look and engage at communion as a really a communal affair. That, that this is something that we partake of together as a community, as an act of sacrifice, even in the bread that we eat, the sacrifice of those who have been involved just as they were today. Maybe they're not in our own family anymore, but today for those who have planted and harvested and prepared that which we eat, that Christ invites us into a communal community with him. I think when we look at food in the Bible, we are reminded through the teachings of the Old Testament, through the very presence of Christ, that our dependence is on God. He could have fashioned us to live eating stones or licking rocks, and yet He fashions us as dependent on food. All of humanity must eat in order to survive. And with every bite and every nibble, God reveals Himself as the sustainer, the one who hangs the stars and and shines the moon, and who radiates the reflection of the sun, the one who brings the season, the one who provides the life in the soil. With each bite, we are invited to remember God as our sustainer. You can find Margaret's new book, Taste and See, at your favorite book retailer today. 
Next time on the Jesus Calling Podcast, we speak with Heisman Trophy winner and NFL Hall of Fame wide receiver, Tim Brown. What motivated much of Tim's success in the early years of his life was a desire to reconcile with his father after a misunderstanding when Tim was only 12 years old, drove them apart for years and defined Tim's path for over a decade. Man, is God in the middle of a father and a son not talking for 12 years? Is God really in the middle of that? I mean, you know, some people may have a hard time believing that that's the case, but I think when it turns out the way it turned out, um, I believe he is. Do you love hearing great stories of faith each week via the Jesus Calling podcast? We want to hear from you. If you haven't already subscribed to the Jesus Calling podcast, visit the Jesus Calling page at iTunes.com and hit the subscribe button. While you're there, we'd love for you to leave us a review and tell us how you feel about the show and what future guests you'd love to see. Your reviews and subscription help us share these stories of faith to more people who need the hope and encouragement of Jesus Calling. If you have your own story to share, we'd love to hear from you. Visit JesusCalling.com to share your story today.